I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And a quick reminder that you can follow us at Pod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. Now let's get on with the show. All presidents lie. Save for a few rabid partisans, it's a truism that most Americans, and certainly almost all historians, would agree with. But without doubt, President Donald Trump has taken matters to a new level, uttering at latest count 19,127 false statements as president, according to Glenn Kessler, the chief fact checker for The Washington Post, causing him to conclude that he is the most mendacious president in U.S. history. We'll talk to Kessler on how he reached that conclusion and what it means for American democracy on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You know, I think it's fair to say that if any journalist in Washington has been busier in the Trump era, it's Glenn Kessler. I mean, he's got more material to work with, seemingly by the hour, just monitoring Donald Trump's tweets than uh, one could have possibly imagined, even though we all knew Trump had a track record of sort of dubious connection to the truth as president. He's taken matters well beyond what anybody could have ever expected. Yeah, you know, it's a great thing that Glenn Kessler and his team of reporters and fact checkers are continuing to do this. You could imagine people getting fatalistic about a project like this and basically saying, what's the point? You know, it's is it really having any impact? I mean, not only is he continuing to utter falsehoods and mistruths and outright lies, but you know, the numbers are going up exponentially. So it hasn't had much of an impact on the president's behavior. But I think it is very important for this to be on the record and to be a reminder to people out there that the truth does matter. And I've actually seen some polling that suggests that Americans actually increasingly care about the truth being reported and that they have actually a little more trust and faith in the mainstream media than they did before. And as shocking as that might sound, maybe that is a kind of a reaction to what this president has done. I'm not sure it buys into uh, a greater faith in the media. I think we still uh, take our lumps and there's, uh, you know, lots of uh, bum stories that uh, get called out, deservedly so in many instances. So I'm I'm not sure it's translated into um, greater credibility for our profession. But I do think that there has been a break point here. And I think I do think the coronavirus pandemic is that break point because 
everybody saw and heard Trump's assertions that we pretty much shut it down coming in from China early on in February. Three weeks later, coronavirus is very well under control in our country. Within a couple of days, it's going to be down to close to zero in terms of number of cases. All those were sort of public comments conspicuously stated by the president of the United States and demonstrably false uh, in in ways that have actual impact on the American people. We've all had our lives disrupted because the president of the United States got so much wrong about this early on. Well, and and I think there's a, a pretty good case to be made that people died because of that, right? I mean, people have, have yeah. certainly said that. And look, it's continuing to have an impact. And, you know, the latest example of this is that uh, Donald Trump and his campaign, they decided to do their first physical rally, which is essentially the kind of re-kicking off of the Trump campaign. It's going to be next Friday, June 19th in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And the instructions are, you know, people aren't going to have to wear masks. They're not going to do real social distancing, you know, unclear if they'll even have hand sanitizer. And so, you know, Donald Trump, I think, is going to be putting his supporters potentially at risk because he is willing to buy into this idea that this thing is just going to go away. But don't they have to sign well, something yes, that they will exa- not well, hold the Trump campaign liable if they get sick and have to go to the hospital because they went to this rally? Exactly. And I think that exposes them that they know what they're doing here and are trying to have it both ways. Yes, they are making people who come to their rally sign a liability disclaimer. So uh, they want immunity. They, they, <laughs> they, want they want, the Trump campaign wants immunity from anybody yeah. who goes to one of the president's rallies and gets sick. Yeah. And I got to say, that is, I mean, there's something amusing about that, but that is not the biggest it's a first. It's a first, it is a first in American but history. But that is not the first, or that is not the only controversial thing about this rally. I think the thing that is even more serious is that they decided to do it in Tulsa, Oklahoma, on Juneteenth, which is the holiday commemorated by African Americans for the, the end of slavery, a very important date for for black Americans and uh, should be a very important date for the entire country. And moreover, to do this in Tulsa, which was the site of the most horrific episode of of racial violence in this country uh, 99 years ago, in which at least 300 African-Americans were killed by people just marauding and rampaging. You know, that's deeply insensitive. It is hard to believe that people um, at the Trump campaign didn't know about it. All you'd have to do is Google the date. And at this point, you know, once they, you know, people have uh, made it known, maybe they should just cancel it. Don't think that's going to happen. So I was going to say, editor-in-chief of Yahoo News, are we sending a reporter to this rally? You know, I was actually um, asked that question today. We have not been sending uh, reporters around the country because of coronavirus. But, uh, you know, that's a 
question that uh, we are continually reassessing. Um, uh, uh, <laughs> All right. Well, so. uh, we will let you uh, reassess over the next uh, week or so and uh, eager to see what your conclusion is uh, and whether you can find any reporters who will agree to go and whether they'll have to sign an immunity deal to Yahoo for being assigned to, uh, uh, to this rally. Uh, but anyway, lots to talk about with Glenn Kessler. So let's get right to it. It's no secret that our world has been interrupted. A World Interrupted is a daily podcast telling stories of coronavirus and its impact on the economy. We want to cover the issues in the macro, global economics, the stock market, and our political climate. We'll also cover the micro stories, maybe the ones you don't hear as much about in the news or the media. We hope you'll listen and be a part of the journey. So subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We now have with us the Washington Post fact checker, Glenn Kessler, the author of the new book, Donald Trump and his assault on truth. Glenn, welcome to Skullduggery. Glad to be with you. So quite a uh, task you have trying to keep track of all of Donald Trump's misstatements, falsehoods, and um, for lack of a better word, lies. How do you keep track when the number of misstatements, falsehoods, whatever you want to call it, seems to increase exponentially by the week? Well, uh, you know, we started this project kind of just, it was supposed to be just a hundred day thing. And he was making about five or six false claims a day so it seemed manageable. So we said, well, we'll keep doing this. And what we didn't realize was that it would just get worse and worse and worse. So the second year of his presidency, he was doing 16 claims a day. The third year of his presidency, he was doing 22 claims a day. And he's continued more or less at that pace so far this year. He got he got slowed down a little bit because he couldn't have his rallies. But he's substituted in all those coronavirus news conferences. And, you know, we just we look at every tweet and we read every transcript, every interview and methodically go through it and identify things that look suspicious. And then we fact check it. So, Glenn, you're using the word claims. Are each one of those claims, do they end up being some kind of a mistruth, falsehood, or lie on the spectrum? Or do some of those turn out to be true? And I guess the quick follow-up question I have is, if those numbers seem to be going up exponentially, what does that tell you? Because what it tells me is he's getting away with it. Right. Okay. Well, um, we we only include you know statements that would, would rank at least two Pinocchios on our scale. We have this Pinocchio scale where four is a whopper, Three is mostly false. Two is, you know, misleading in a particular way. It's, and so if it, if it matches up for two Pinocchios, we'll include it. So yeah, is he getting away with it? Well, that's a good question. I'm not sure this is necessarily working for him. Mm-hmm. He's never gotten, a, he's the only president since World War II never to have ever achieved an average polling rating of above 50%. And when you look deep into the polling, a big problem for him is that people don't trust what he says. So I think, you know, it might, some of the stuff he says seems to inspire his base 
but uh, it turns off a lot of Americans. But I, yeah, I was going to say his polling has been remarkably steady. So for his core supporters, it seems they either don't think he's lying or they tolerate his lies. But he's got that ceiling, which maybe have to do with the fact that it's hard to expand your support when when people think you're a liar. <laughs> Right. I mean, the, the interesting thing about Trump is that he's uh, he, he doesn't seem to have any particular interest in trying to reach out to the other side. He's very laser focused on his base, which might explain why he commands such loyalty from his base, because it's a president. He's not making compromises. He's not doing things that would necessarily upset your base or, or bring people in from the other side, like the things that most other presidents have done. He's sticking to his base. Now, we've done polling because we, we tested whether or not his most common misstatements were actually believed by most Americans. We found that most people, when Trump was not identified, but we said, is this a true statement or a false statement? And most, by large majorities, people could identify the false statement, which is the thing that Trump said. But what we found was that Republicans... 15 years ago, used to 70% used to say it was important for a president to be honest and trustworthy. The same percentage as Democrats and independents. And when we asked that same question again last year, Democrats and independents were still at 70%. Republicans were at 49%. Statistically significant, which means <laughs> that they understand he's not telling the truth, but they've just decided it's no longer important to them that a president tells the truth. Now, Glenn, you write something that I think most people would accept in the in the introduction of the book, which is that all presidents lie. And there are famous, in fact, the introduction to this podcast plays a gallery of uh, untruths, uh, whether it be Richard Nixon saying I'm not a crook or Bill Clinton saying I did not have sexual relations with that woman or Ronald Reagan saying he didn't sell arms to hostages. Um, but you, then you conclude that Donald Trump is different and you say he's the most mendacious president in American history. How do you distinguish between the falsehoods of previous presidents and this president in particular? Well, as a, um, most other presidents, I mean, they all lie. They're all kind of known for one big particular lie. I mean, they, they obviously stretch the truth in a variety of different ways. But what is consistent about Trump is that he is constantly saying things that are false, even after he's been called out been told that they are false, and he misleads about things that he doesn't need to mislead about. I mean, he would exaggerate his economic numbers when they were still good. They, routinely, he would add 600,000 jobs created to the number of jobs created in his presidency. There was no reason to do that when you could claim 7 million jobs, or he would make it 7,600,000. So it's just a, a consistent effort to sketch his own particular reality. It's always bigger, bolder, better than anything else. It involves also the other aspect. You didn't have other presidents so consistently denigrate people that they consider enemies or people to in opposition to them. And most presidents would kind of play the game and at least, you know, in public, not pretend that they 
totally detested that person. I was going to say, you had one the other day that I completely missed, which is that Trump has claimed that he's done more for African-Americans than any president since Abraham Lincoln, seemingly to forget, you know, Lyndon Johnson, the passage of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, Harry Truman desegregating the military, Ulysses S. Grant going after the, the Ku Klux Klan. It's so casual that he just says these things that don't remotely stand up to any basic fact check. Right. And then he also says it over and over again. I mean, he's now said this line. Uh, he actually said it just today again. And he kind of said, you know, Lincoln, it wasn't necessarily a good result what he did. <laughs> no, he was because <laughs> he sometimes thinks he's better than even Lincoln in terms of black Americans. What do you think? I mean, I, I know this isn't your mandate. You're really tracking the misstatements and you know verifying what he says. But after doing this as long as you have, I just wonder what your thoughts are on the impact of this much lying. I mean, some would argue that it is you know fraying our society's ethical standards and that it will have an impact going forward. I don't know what you think about that. Does it have an impact on policy? And on on governance, you know, Isakoff wrote a book about the um, I don't know if he would say lying, but some would say lying that got us into the Iraq war. So um, falsehoods. We'll, we can stick with falsehoods. Okay, falsehoods. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So how do you think about that question? Well, you know, a lot of it depends on, frankly, is if he gets reelected, because if he's reelected, there might be politicians who would say, look, this guy, he said, you know, 20,000 things that were totally false and misleading. And yet it didn't matter. In the end, he was successful. If he turns out to not get reelected, people might start to think, well, maybe that really didn't work for him. You know, after Nixon came Carter who you know, famously went around saying, I'm not going to lie to you, because he was that was a reaction. I mean, every in politics, every action has a reaction. So that's the lesson from a defeat for Donald Trump would be maybe this is not the, you know, it may get you elected, but it may, may not be sustainable. Now, you use the two Pinocchio standard as the threshold for inclusion in this book. I would say the two Pinocchio standard Let's agree that it's inherently objective, but that's a pretty low bar. In fact, I doubt that there is a single member of Congress or American political figure on the national scene who doesn't meet that quite a bit. So have you set the standard too low there to call that a full assault on truth? Because surely we can find many examples of others who are meeting that low a bar. Well, that is a, certainly a fair question. In the book, we did not include all 16. I mean, first of all, the 16, 19,000 now, the 19,000 includes many things he's repeated. So he's said like more than 300 times that he had the greatest economy in U.S. history. Now, that that's a falsehood. There are many ways you can, you can look at data, and it's certainly not true. But that accounts for 350 of the 19,000 claims. In the book, we highlighted, I mean, these were not two Pinocchio claims. The book highlights the biggest falsehoods of Trump. And frankly, much of what Trump says is three or four Pinocchio. I mean, he's when when he was running for president, I, I haven't actually calculated it for his presidency, but when he was running for president, 65% of the things we looked at 
turned out to be four Pinocchio claims. And, you know, an ordinary politician is about 15 <laughs> percent. I'd like to see the data that supports these figures. But if you had to um, pick your top three of the most egregious, outrageous Trump falsehoods, what would they be? Whoppers. Let's call it whoppers. Complete whoppers. whoppers. Yeah. Well, um, in our first chapter, we identify the top 10. I mean, it's and we say it's a little hard. It's like, you know, when you've got an ocean of tunes to pick your favorite pop songs. Mm-hmm. And I guess the most important, I mean, it, with the most consequences, you could look at his claims that he lost a popular vote because of illegal voting, voting by, uh, you know, undocumented immigrants, which is completely false, but serves to undermine our our. Um, faith in the in in elections and democracy a kind of a signature lie of his is that mexico is paying for the wall i mean he said mexico would pay for the wall he he now insists that mexico is paying for the wall because he can't admit to himself he broke a campaign promise and then you know maybe another one i would put there would be um his claims that you know obama wiretapped him yeah, I was just going to say that that one uh, really stuck with me. Wiretap Trump Tower, I think, is was the original uh, version of it, for which no evidence has ever uh, surfaced that supports that. Now, I suppose you know, in every, in most cases, you could find some slender thing that might support his, you know. Whopper. Uh, in that case, we do know they did uh, get a FISA, the FBI, on Carter Page, a campaign advisor that presumably would have allowed them to see past emails and communications that Page had with anybody in the uh, Trump campaign, uh, including those at Trump Tower. It's a grotesque stretch. But, you know, there is that perhaps one little thing, one little factoid that might support it. When you work through these and you see, well, okay, let's let's give him overwhelming benefit of the doubt. Is there a limit to how far you can go? Well, I mean, in in that instance, first of all, um, the stuff about the FISA application and and. Uh, was not necessarily known when he made that statement. He was basing, he was literally based it on some sketchy reporting that appeared in a British newspaper. And the Justice Department actually was required to submit a statement to a federal court saying there is no evidence to support this assertion by the President of the United States. But one of the consequences of Trump demanding that everyone in his on, on his team, you know, back up his falsehoods. I mean, in the case of the election claims, he set up a whole commission to try to show that there was illegal voting. And now you have a situation where the Justice Department under, under William Barr is, you know, going back over the, the Russia investigation and looking for ways to somehow defend what was originally based on a sketchy blog post. So it becomes rather insidious. It's like, you know, he's trying to revert, they're trying to reverse engineer that, that there's some germ of truth to something that he said, which was totally false when he said it. Glenn, I'm still fascinated 
by the question of why Trump's mistruths, lying, falsehoods seem to have so little consequence for him, at least in the in the moment. I, I take your point that he may not be re- reelected. This may have something to do with it. But, you know, you point out that, you know, in the one you know, really public, egregious public example of the Bush administration lying, again, back to the Iraq war, which is that Iraq was, they had intelligence that Iraq was trying to buy u- uranium in Africa. When that was exposed as a, as a falsehood, people lost their jobs and, you know, there were criminal investigations. So why is it? Is it that just the fact that he is willing to do this with impunity, that he's done it close to 20,000 times? He ends up getting graded on a curve. Is it, you know, the sort of profound polarization that we now have in our politics? You actually had a fascinating uh, statistic. I was going to read it quickly. In 1960, a survey found that only 4% of Democrats and 4% of Republicans said they would be disappointed if their child married someone from the opposite political party. In a 2019 survey, 45% of Democrats and 35% of Republicans said they would be somewhat or very unhappy if their son or daughter married someone from the other party. And that speaks to that polarization and the idea that kind of tribe trumps no pun intended, everything else. So what are your thoughts about that? Well, I, yes, certainly the, the fact that increasingly Americans view their own persona through their political identity has made it easier for someone like Trump to just win the support of people because he has an R next to his name and they're willing to excuse his behavior in other ways. But I also think part of the reason why he kind of gets away with it is because there's so much. It's overwhelming. And in the case of the Bush administration, it was a shocking thing that the president said something that was false in a State of the Union address. But now, you know, Trump's State of the Union address, we could find 30, 35 things in there that are completely wrong or made up or or false. And and the things he has said, my favorite Trump thing, it's like, it's silly, but it's still kind of amazing to me. Four times he has said that the government of Philippines would not let Barack Obama land his plane for an official visit because they were mad at him. Now, it never happened. (laughs) And and Trump says he left, they left the plane circling in the sky. It's like a complete invention. But, you know, he didn't say it once. He said it four times. And like, it barely got noticed. It's just like Trump saying something about Obama. Why does he do it? A big thing about Trump is he lives for the moment. He's very situational. He's totally undisturbed by the idea that what he said today might be different than something he said yesterday. And one of his animating impulses in the case of Obama is he just detests Obama and wants to denigrate Obama in every possible way he can. You know, I mean, in the book we say, why would he do such a thing? Well, because he can, because he says it and no one, you know, we did a fact check, you know, we tweet, oh, he said this again, it's wrong, but it barely gets noticed. Do you think he knows he's lying in each instance? No, I think he convinces himself these things are true. I don't think, and that's why we don't often use the word lie when we write our fact checks, because he lives in his own world, his own social media-driven world, and he absorbs information that confirms that. He rejects information that does not confirm what he already believes. And like I said, he may be utterly, utterly inconsistent. I mean, 
in the case of coronavirus. He played it down for weeks, and then he had suddenly announced, I thought it was a pandemic before anyone thought it was a pandemic. Yeah, you, you know, you mentioned that uh, in the fact check, you often will not say lie. And as you know, you know better than anyone else, probably, that that's been a debate in newsrooms around the country. And you will see some news organizations use that word. I've always been uncomfortable with it because it implies intent. And we've got excellent reporters, but none that have actually been able to get inside (laughs) Donald Trump's mind. Are there instances where that word is appropriate when you're writing about the things that Donald Trump says that are are provably false? Yes, we made it a front page story, actually, when we declared that his comments about saying he had no idea that about the payments to his alleged paramours, we deemed that a lie because there was a recording of him talking about it. Hmm. So, you know, that that, that was an instance where, you know, the editor of the Washington Post, Marty Barron, came up to me in the newsroom and said, you know, I think we can use the word lie here once those recordings came out. So we decided to do that. But it, otherwise, it's it's hard. It's difficult. I think you can certainly label his claims that Obama was born in Kenya. You could probably label that as a lie, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was no no excuse except, you know, Trump being Trump to, to constantly say that. How about the recent claims that uh, Joe Scarborough uh, may have murdered a former staff member? I think that one also gets certainly close to the lie category. Now, Trump defends himself by saying he's just asking questions. It seems very suspicious to him, but it shouldn't be. If you just look at, you know, the police had looked into this. It was a tragic accident. Joe Scarborough barely knew the woman and he was hundreds of miles away. So why even raise the questions except because you've decided that Joe Scarborough is an, is an enemy and you want to try to make life tough for him. But as we uh, were suggesting before, Trump is not the first president uh, to issue falsehoods. Also, and certainly not the only presidential candidate. Joe Biden claiming that he marched with Nelson Mandela. Is that a four Pinocchio one? Yes, I gave him four Pinocchios for that. Definitely. Okay. You know, I mean, and Biden is an interesting case of someone who is often stretching his past incidences, conflating them, mixing them up, making them seem grander than they are. I was I was rereading some of the Biden sections yesterday in What It Takes by Richard Ben Kramer, where he perfectly he perfectly captures Biden wanting to draw in the crowd. And so he's He's uh, an exaggerator. I, I will tell you this, if Biden wins the election with the fact checker, will not be put out of business. <laughs> I mean, I was just going to say, do you have a, a database on Joe Biden falsehoods? Uh, well, we haven't done that. If he becomes president, we should definitely consider that. Well, he's running for president. I mean, people I mean, listen, if this is a central problem that people have with Donald Trump, that he routinely says things that aren't true, I would argue that there ought to be as rigorous a fact checking of the guy who wants to replace him as you have of the incumbent president. Oh, well, and that's what we do. I mean, you can find all our fact checks right there on the on the Washington Post website. I've done quite a few Biden fact checks. I just did one today. So we're prepared to keep at that. It is a little difficult because often the, the things we have to fact check with Trump are more consequential than the, some of the stuff that Biden says. 
Yeah. I, just a reminder, since you brought up uh, Richard Ben Kramer's excellent book, I mean, Biden had to drop out of a presidential race, that presidential race, by claiming to have experiences that he actually stole from a British politician. Right. He was going around saying he he, he was the son of a coal miner. Because <laughs> <laughs> right. was, that, was, that was Neil Kinnock, I guess. Yeah. Well, uh, he he is from Scranton, and there are a lot of coal mines around there. So, <laughs> Glenn, you sort of alluded to this before, but to what extent are these, you know, is this sort of prevarication on the part of Trump infectious? I mean, the, you, uh, do you see it around him, among his advisors? They're getting sucked into this. I mean, they clearly have to defend him, and so implicitly they are— you know, allowing those falsehoods to kind of linger. But do you think that he's kind of lowered the standard for presidential advisors? And are you seeing them do this as well? Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, Kellyanne Conway had famously said, you know, there are alternative facts. And, you know, I think the Secretary of State, I, used to, I spent nine years covering diplomacy. I covered three secretaries of state. And I don't think any of them would say the sort of falsehoods that Mike Pompeo has been saying lately. I mean, it's totally not credible what he says about the, his firing of the inspector general and how he did had no idea that the inspector general was in, investigating him. I know how the State Department works. There was He obviously knew about it, and yet he goes out and says that. His whole thing with uh, Mary Louise Kelly of NPR. Well, he... He called her a liar, right? He called her a liar, and she was able to produce the email saying, no, uh, this is what I said I was going to ask questions about. So I do think it has become somewhat infectious among among his closest advisors. Uh, there's a, quite a debate going on right now about the degree to which social media companies, Facebook and Twitter and others, should police what goes on their platforms, particularly when it comes from the president of the United States. Uh, when he says things, should they take them down? Should they um, flag them with uh, and, and offer alternative information? But it is. And since that's how many Americans learn about Trump's falsehoods or what they are, that's when they that's where they see them first on Twitter. How do you see that debate? And do you think that Twitter and Facebook should be more rigorous in taking down, removing or flagging Trump's falsehoods on their platforms? Well, I think they should. I mean, there's a bit of an inconsistency with Facebook. You know, Facebook has this third party fact check it checking operation. Uh, the Washington Post is not part of it, but organizations like PolitiFact and FactCheck.org identify things that are on Facebook that are false, and then Facebook will flag them and lower them down in the in the hierarchy of things that people see. But the problem is, if Donald Trump says the same false thing that PolitiFact might have said is false on this particular you know, post, they don't take it down. And to me, that's somewhat inconsistent. If it's why, if it's coming out of the president's mouth, it shouldn't be left out on, left on Facebook if Facebook has already taken it down because it was not the president of the United States saying it. But the argument on the other side is that he is the president of the United States and what he says matters whether it's true or not. People should know if he's saying things that are untrue. And one way of them learning that is to read what he's saying. Right. But all you have to do is is append the fact check to it. I mean, that's what Facebook does. 
it does also lower the uh, amount of traffic a statement might get. But, you know, some of the Trump campaign ads, they re- repeat things that have been deemed false. So, and, you know, I, I would say, argue the same should apply to a Biden campaign ads. If it's been deemed false, I'm not sure why it should be, you know, allowed in such wide circulation. Well, excellent point. Uh, by the way, when you say the campaign ads that have been deemed false, uh, any particular examples come to mind with that one? Well, we've done a number of both campaigns have produced ads where they take certain comments out of context. And we've tried to be really rigorous about that. So one of the things that the Trump people do is they take comments that Biden made having to do when he, you know, when he was vice president about China and c- snipping him. So it leaves out all the context and makes it seems like he's just, you know, praising the Chinese and are missing the other part of it. And the Biden people have done the same thing with Trump, though, frankly, the specifics is escaping me. But it's a huge problem is manipulated video. And at the fact checker, we're really we've identified different categories of manipulated video. And we're trying very hard that as soon as we see that, to call out these campaigns when they do that. And there's now an effort to actually get the identification of manipulated video highlighted in Google search results and YouTube results and things like that. I, I got to say, almost every day now when I go on Twitter, I'll see a, a tweet linking to a Biden video that makes him look like completely tongue-tied and unable to complete a thought. Now, in many cases, they, this may be completely accurate, but I'm beginning to get the sinking feeling in my stomach that they're also, in many cases, being manipulated and being spliced together to make him look even worse than he actually looked. And I think that's a huge problem because those videos can be very convincing if you're mindless of the fact of the the ease to which these things can be manipulated. Right. Well, and just, I mean, I saw, I'm trying to remember who did it. It may have been the Daily Show. They decided to do like a companion clip of just Trump being inarticulate. And, you know, the sign of things that the Trump people are constantly passing around for Biden, but they just showed how easy it was to produce one of these things. Because like any human being, you can be stumble over your words or, or, you know, stutter about something. And Trump does this himself, too. But the Biden people aren't snipping it like the Trump people are, because I guess they're not trying to make, you know, drive home the same message. Well, maybe well, they're not well, as clever. <laughs> we haven't even gotten to so-called deep fakes, uh, you know, artificial intelligence being used to actually create videos out of whole cloth. We interviewed your colleague, David Ignatius, about his uh, new novel, terrific novel, uh, The Paladin. That's a plot line in, in that. But that is challenging for you guys, uh, your your team, uh, with these videos. Tell us a little bit about your process and kind of infrastructure you have. Uh, I mean, it's become a bit of a industry there at The Post, right? You have a bunch of other reporters who work with you. Uh, what is your process like? Right. So there, in, in fact, the book, uh, you know, Trump, Donald Trump and his assault on truth was co-written with two of two of the reporters that work with me. It's a team of four people at the moment, two of us who do most of the reporting, two who do videos for us, because actually we get more viewers of our videos than readers of the fact check. And uh, so that's become a big part of it. And then we also work in other ways. We have other video people that work with us, in particular, helping verify video and looking, you know, examining this manipulate, you know, whether or not something has been manipulated or not. And our process 
you know, we see something, you know, the core thing is to write deeply about policy and explain the com complex policy issues to people. And we use the claim as a jumping off point. And so if we identify a claim that looks like it's fishy and it will allow us to help educate people about healthcare policy or tax policy or foreign policy, we'll dig into it and write up the fact check. And then do you reach out to the Trump White House or the campaign and say, we're, we're about to give you four Pinocchios on this? Uh, what, what's your response? What's that, what's that interaction like? Well, you know, I, when I first started this nine years ago, I used to tell people what the Pinocchio rating was going to be. And I had to drop it after about a year because people started plea bargaining over Pinocchios. <laughs> you take a Pinocchio to the bank or something for the later, you know. So um, we don't really tell people now, but they kind of know what's coming based on our questions. But we always reach out and we always are willing to, you know, get a counter at uh, the Trump White House has kind of waxed and waned where they've sometimes been eager to engage with us. Other times they ignore us. It's usually when it's something the president has said that's indefensible. The Trump campaign is actually very responsive and very eager to make their case. So, you know, and the Biden campaign is is often very eager to make their case. So the White House does play ball sometimes and, and argue in defense of some of the um, statements by the president? Yes. It depends on what part of the White House. Is there a, a designated fact checker person on the White House staff who's uh, assigned to answer your queries? There has been. Then he left. Then it kind of, like I said, it kind of went mortibund. And lately, we were then told recently there's a group of four people we write to and they would figure it out. It worked well for a couple of weeks. And then lately, it's, it's, uh, we're not getting answers to our emails. Yeah. I mean, the reason I ask is just to say the uh, uh, I don't know if you read it, but Michael Tomaski has a op ed in The New York Times today. Why does Trump lie? And he argues that uh, while he agrees, as you write, that all presidents have have issued some whoppers over the years, Trump's are different because he doesn't really care whether or not he gets called out on these things and that there's that basically he and the White House doesn't engage in trying to defend what truth there might be to his many falsehoods. Yeah, but they, they have tried. And, and actually, the interesting thing is, and maybe it's because the Pinocchio is such a visually arresting image, Trump has talked many times about how he hates getting Pinocchios. And he say, like, if I'm 97% right, don't give me a Pinocchio. So it, it's, he notices it. I, it's, he, it seems to irritate him because we, in the book we have a list of the 20 or so times he's talked about Pinocchios. Uh, so it's it irritates him, but it doesn't rein him in. <laughs> no, I know. But it, that's like he's situational. It's, it, it works for him today. He'll say it, but it, Isakoff, I was uh, when you when you asked whether there was a whether there was a fact checker on the White House staff, I, I started to think, you know. Well, if there's a guy who calls you back from the White House who says his name is Baron, <laughs> you'll yeah. know who the fact checker is. Yeah. Uh, for our listeners who don't remember, Baron was the uh, fictitious name that Trump gave himself when he would uh, call journalists trying to pass himself off as someone other than Trump talking about Trump. Right. 
Well, I think it's fair to say that if anybody in Washington uh, has his hands full, it's you, Glenn, um, because uh, you've uh, you know got daily challenges every day uh, with this president. So um, we don't want to keep you from your monitoring uh, too long. So the Donald Trump Full Employment Act. Yes, for fact checkers. Right. Anyway, <laughs> thanks a lot. And the book again is Donald Trump and the Assault on Truth. You're welcome. Glad to be with you. Thanks to Washington Post fact checker and author Glenn Kessler for joining us on Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.